Are we doing this? Really? Wait for it. Are we doing this? Wait for it. Ow! What the fuck? WTF. And it's also, eh, what the fuck? What's wrong with me? It's time for WTF. What the fuck? With Mark Marin. Okay, let's do this. What the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? This is Mark Marin. This is WTF. What the fuck? And what the fuck am I doing standing behind a dumpster in a strip mall in Kirkland, Washington. The mall is called the Totem Square. That's right. It's called the Totem Square. And this is where the glamorous life of comedy can bring you sometimes. I'm out behind the dumpsters because I don't want to make a scene wandering around with my microphone because there's a dude standing out front smoking a cigarette. Saw me walk by and said, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean what I'm doing? Just because I'm walking down the street with a large vocal mic and a portable flash recorder with a headset on. What is it? What, What business is it of yours? I didn't say that. I said, look, buddy, I'm doing some radio. So here's the what the fuck. And I'm going to be honest with you because I generally am. It's very hard sometimes when you do comedy to enter a new world to drive 15, 20 miles out of a major metropolitan area to a club in a strip mall called Laughs and think that your career is on the right trajectory. It's difficult. And I know some of you will think or say, hey, quit whining, Mark. You're doing okay. We listen to your podcast. Yeah, I'm 46 years old. I've watched many of my friends go on to play theaters, and there's part of me that wants to do that. So sometimes it's hard for me not to be condescending. I get to places like this, you know, and I'll tell you, honestly, great club. Though it's in a strip mall with a uh, let's let's take a look at the, the other businesses in the strip mall. And, and don't don't misunderstand me. I am on the marquee of Totem Square uh, here in Kirkland. Uh, but let's see. We've got uh, we've got um, we've got a cigar bong place. We've got uh, the I love teriyaki store. Then there's a sign that just says nails, just nails. Yeah. And then we've got a uh, savvy salon. Mm hmm. And there's a faux place at the end. Now, is this where I thought I'd be? Oh, wait. No, oh, you know what? Don't, don't let me forget uh, the Bead Hut. The Bead Hut is here as well, if anyone's wondering. That's uh, Totem Square in Kirkland, Washington, across from the Infinity dealership. So I judge. I got to be honest with you. I, I walk into a room and, and I'll, I'll, you know, Friday night first show was very packed. And uh, I thought, well, who are these people? They couldn't have come to see me. And then I think like, oh, fuck this. Fuck. Why am I doing in this suburb? You know, fuck these people. They don't care who I am. And then I think like, oh, that's horrible, Mark. Why are you judging? Because you're disappointed because you're not where you want to be at this point in your life. Or maybe uh, maybe you're almost where you need to be. Who knows? But the fact is, I feel bad for judging because I get very misanthropic when I get uh, self-pitying or angry. I'm like, fuck everybody, I deserve better. And then I did a great show, and they were a great audience, and all of a sudden, I don't hate everybody. I love everybody. We're all just people united by a common thread of, of humanity, even though it's a, a little uh, you know, buried in some people. But you, know, you can tap into it if you make them laugh and find the fear and find the sadness and find the anger, and everybody groups around that and, and has a good chuckle. So I begin the weekend misanthropic and now all of a sudden it's like oh it doesn't matter where anybody's from because we are all just people i'll tell you what happens after this show because i'm in the parking lot sorry i'm gonna swallow my nicotine gum so i'm up here in seattle which is you know bittersweet my ex-wife is from seattle i've been coming to seattle for years there's a few things i like to do here uh i like to go to uh, jack's fish counter in Pike's Market and eat fried scallops. I've done that with uh, two wives, and now I I met my girlfriend up here because she lives in New Mexico. So I've done that with three women. I like to stand out and look over Puget Sound. I like to wander around the streets in the rain, in the grayness. Well, here's something that happened. I'll tell you what happened. I I wasn't going to tell you, but but I'll tell you because I think it was a nice moment of sharing. They got me put up at a place called the Nexus Hotel, which I looked up on uh, the internet. I googled it. I Googled uh, the Nexus, and it was uh, you know, presented on the Internet as one of those sort of hipster places. Like, this is one of those groovy places that groovy people go. And we get there, and there's something a little off about it. And then I get the lowdown. Oh, it was a Ramada. This is as if, like, maybe a Hotel 6 fucked Ikea. They had this thing. It was a Ramada, but they just, you know, they Ikea'd it. They got a bunch of cheap sort of uh, Danish modern-looking stuff and put it in the rooms. We painted everything. But structurally, it's still a Ramada. Structurally, I was still woken up by the guy's phone ringing in the room next door, and he answered it at 5.30 in the morning and started yelling in Spanish. 
So that's not too hip. Not too hip. But that's where we're staying. And I haven't seen the woman that I've been seeing because she was in New Mexico. So, of course, we do what people do when they haven't seen each other in a while. We get to the hotel and we immediately start having sex. Now, what I didn't realize until after we got done having sex, which was good. It was, it was good. It, it worked out. It was uh, very satisfying and uh, intense. But what I didn't realize was is that the curtains to the room were open. And this is one of those hotels that's uh, got several floors, and you've got to get to your door by walking down a balcony. So there's, we're on the fourth floor, and it's the fourth floor balcony, which means there's a, basically a corridor around the building where people just walk by your room. And I realized, oh, my God, we were just fucking, and the window was open. It was wide open. And I felt shame at first. I felt a little exposed, a little vulnerable. But then I thought, what a wonderful thing we've, got, we've done for the people walking by. What a gift we've given them. Because isn't that what we all want? I mean, come on. Let's be honest. When you're walking down those long hallways or long or, you know, outdoor balconies, past hotel rooms with windows, you kind of look out the corner of your eyes, see if you can catch a glimpse of something. Well, I know what they caught a glimpse on, and it was a full-on fuckfest show. We gave that gift to somebody, something that somebody will never forget. Man, one time we were at the Nexus Hotel, and we were walking down to our room, and we watched these two people fuck for like 20 minutes. They didn't even see us. All right, maybe 20 minutes was stretching it, but it, it, was, it was you know long in, in terms of sex time. So what we're going to do with this show that I'm in Seattle is I, there's a few things I wanted to do when I was here. There's a few people I wanted to talk to. Uh, I don't know if you know about Fantagraphics books or if any of you were sort of into the alternative comic era in the 90s. Uh, but I've been a big fan of some of the guys that, that came out of Fantagraphics here in Seattle, like uh, Charles Burns, Pete Bag, Daniel Klaus, uh, the Hernandez brothers, which I, I didn't read too much. But I got a buddy who I've been sort of in touch with over the years named Eric Reynolds, who's an associate publisher over at Fantagraphics. And I'm going to go over to the Fantagraphics store and talk to him about alternative comics. And he's going to bring Pete Bag, who is the, uh, the author and artist of Hate Comics. And I'm looking forward to talking to him. And then if we can catch up with her, I'm going to track down an old girlfriend of mine that, that really changed my life in a lot of ways. And we've had a lot of ups and downs over the years, but I've known her 25 years. She's a blacksmith. She is a welder. She is a maker of art. Lauren Osmolsky uh, will also be on the show. So, uh, so, so look forward to that and uh, enjoy the rest. I'm in the, I'm, we're actually in the back room. I don't even, I think we're in the stock room. Are we, Eric? This is the, the damage discount room. Oh, so people can actually come here and buy damage books. Yeah, exactly. Books that we can't resell. I'm talking to, uh, to Eric Reynolds, who uh, I've known kind of for years. He is, I, I, you are the associate publisher mm -hmm. uh, for Fantagraphics Books and Comics. Now, for those of you who don't know Fantagraphics, they are the most important publishing house on the planet. <laughs> For those of us who are, are still engaged and defined by comic art, uh, but you also publish a lot of other books, but they do everything from the Peanuts collection to, uh, to all of, uh, do you do all of our crumb stuff now? Uh, he has several books with other publishers, but we do the most, and we have a, the complete Crumb Comics, which is a library of, of everything he's ever done, chronologically. And so you get Peanuts to our Crumb. That's a big leap from uh, traditional comics, but you also you, you did a Popeye collection. You we do did a lot of uh, strip collections. Crazy of, Cat, yeah, Crazy Cat, uh, Peanuts, Nancy, Pogo, Prince Valiant. Oh, wow. So you get really the history of what comics are, uh, certainly in America, and then you go through the underground. Uh, the, the, I think that Robert Crumb is one of the, the most important satirists of the last hundred years, yeah. really. And then you get into the, uh, the Seattle School. Yep. Which, uh, who, I, who, what defines that? Daniel Klaus, uh, Peter well, Bagg, um, Charles Pete Burns. Bag, Charles Burns, um, Jim Woodring. Uh, Linda Berry's from here. Matt Groening's from here. Although we don't publish them, but there is a you know. Ooh, Matt Groening. That would have that would have changed everything. <laughs> if you just had that, a couple of those titles, right? Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's a very rich tradition of of you know alternative cartooning in the Northwest. It's interesting that it seems like Fantagraphics really created and helped sort of uh, invent this sort of. Uh, 
you know, comic book nerd, alternative, emo. I, I mean, there just seems to be something that evolved out of that time that, that started in something that was essentially gritty in 70s and drugs and sex and fucking and violence into something more punk rock. And then it kind of softened into something a little more precious. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. But I think going back, you know, there's always every... For as long as there have been comic books, um, there has there's always been like an element of of the comic book culture that um, I think has really penetrated the larger culture mm-hmm. um, in terms of people like yourself who grew up on them and then went on to go do other things that even though you didn't become a cartoonist, I think you're influenced by by the comics you read in the same way that. Um, that people read Harvey Kurtzman's Mad in the 50s and went on to, you know, start Saturday Night Live and things like that. I think you'd have uh, National Lampoon without Mad Comics. Or well, that's, Saturday Night that's Live sort of where I Mad. come from. You're right. Well, yeah, that's um, where I come from. I come from Mad Magazine, and then I, I grew into National Lampoon. Not in the 50s, but I mean, I grew up in the 70s. Right. But those were my things, and I was very anti-cracked magazine. Right. And, <laughs> and, and then, uh, but I never... I was never a, a mythological comic guy, and I think that for me, you know, when I first read Crumb and I'm, when I first read Lampoon, there was something so dirty and so gritty and so human about it. That's what draw. That's what drew me to this type of comic because right. I I can't read other than like I got sort of hung up on uh, Sandman and Hellblazer because they were mystical, but never comic book heroes because I liked the the humanity yeah, of this sure. type of, of of comic. Sure, and I and I think that. I don't know. I can't. I, I don't like cartoons. Like, I don't like. I don't. I won't go see animated films, yeah. really. But for some reason, R. Crumb and people like uh, Pete Bag and Charles Burns, there was something so visceral and so, you know, challenging and human about this stuff. Comics have a, a way of. Uh, they have a real immediacy to them. That's you know? it. That's what it is. They just. They, they're really immersive, really fast, you know? Right. And, um, and, you know, somebody put it to me once that in a. In a in a prose novel, you're sometimes more of a, a participant because you're having to visualize the the what's what's the written word. You know, you're you're kind of an active participant in processing uh-huh. the the prose. Whereas in comics, y- you know, they really just put you in there and 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 it's all there for you right from the get go. Right. Um, and there's something you know uh, transportive about that or something. And and the comics that you're talking about. Um, you know, they, 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 you say you weren't a mythological guy and, um, you know, and I think most people who gravitate towards those comics would say the same thing. You know, these, these, they're called alternative comics because they, they are, uh, existing in, in opposition to something else. You know? well, I guess that's true. Yeah. I, and, and what are the, what are some of the, like I, you guys just put out the, did you put that out or do you just sell it? The, 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 the whole black hole. We published Black Hole originally as the in the as a comic book series. Charles then, Burns is that's his name. Yeah, Charles Burns yeah. like blows me away. That's one of my all time favorite comics. I mean, it, for sure. Oh my god, it's like a fucking masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it's it's mind blowing. It's cryptic. It's 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 horrifying yet completely compelling at the same time. It doesn't give you a lot of information, but mm-hmm. it gives you just enough. And the art is just spectacular. It's one of those books like um, like a Mulholland Drive or uh, right, Inland like, Empire where the, m- the more you revisit it, the more you get out of it. I know. It's I like, like something you have to kind of uncode and unlock. Yeah. You know, as you go along. No, so I got to read it again. Uh-huh. Like I couldn't put it down. Like I blew through that thing. Like I, I bought it and I blew through it because I'd read it. I don't think I read all of the comic editions, but I read most of them. Mm-hmm. And it's just like he it is like Lynch where you're, you're sort of enchanted into this dark world that doesn't completely make sense. No, and you're but not there's sh- enough. There's enough sense to it that, you know, there's you know, there's an internal logic to it that that does make sense even if exactly you're not quite wrapping your head around it when it's happening and also it seems to be framed around the time i went to high school mm-hmm. so the haircuts and the sensibility of the kids in there it like i was there i mean i don't know how old he is he's probably about your age i would say now his... now i guess now i just want to like you know be a fanboy is he like a, a trip is he freak he's or? a he's a great down-to-earth very centered guy <laughs> really yeah and that kind of weird kind of, uh, you know, spiraling darkness comes out of a, a down-to-earth centered guy. The funny thing is, is he went to, that black hole's all set in Seattle. And um, he went to uh, uh, Roosevelt High School. 
which is just about five blocks away from the Fanographics offices. Uh-huh. Of course, he graduated, you know, 10, 15 years before Fanographics even moved there. But um, but it's kind of funny because the Fanographics offices are, are really, like, steeped right in the middle of exactly what you see in Black Hole. Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's so awesome. So is that now, let, let's just go over some of the titles, because so, I don't know that... Uh, a lot of my listeners are necessarily comic people or that they would know about Fantagraphics. But, I mean, I'm always surprised because I've been on the uh, the press list for a while. You know, you, I get full editions of things. And when you guys do something like Black Hole or you publish uh, these uh, these more kind of provocative, you know, dark, I, I don't know how else to explain it. And then all of a sudden I get, a, you know, the complete peanuts in the mail. Right. Is, is this an evolution? Do you, do you yeah, not? It's all, it's all part of the same continuum of... Mm-hmm. of good cartooning yeah so that's what it is it's yeah. cartooning yeah and schultz you know is is a weird figure because he's like the beatles of comics you know uh-huh. it's like the the hipsters like him the the mainstream likes him um i mean he's kind of just unimpeachably great like the beatles and so you know to some people it seems like an odd fit but it doesn't at all to me uh-huh and what are some of the what are some of the titles that you you guys put out where you're like you think would be surprising to people like um, Prince Valiant. That was one when I was a kid and I was reading the funnies uh, in the Sunday paper. I'd always never read it. Oh, yeah. hell no. No, I was the same way. It, you know, it was just too text heavy. and Yeah, it was weird. It was and it was like, you know, there were nights. And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, again, like, honestly, Prince Valiant's not my favorite strip in the world. But um, as an example of just pure illustrative skill, he was pretty, he, he was about as good as it gets. Hal Foster, the creator. Mm-hmm. For me, um, I I came to Fanographics because of Dan Klaus and Peter Bagg and Charles Burns and the Hernandez brothers and um, getting to work with those guys is just amazing to me. So um, we've we, you've come to some of my shows over the years and I and I don't I don't remember how we first got in contact with each other. Well, we had just moved into our warehouse that we have down on First Avenue near Safeco Field. Um, and we threw an open house, like That's a right. housewarming party, yeah, yeah. Um, where we had a sale and opened the warehouse up to the public. Typically, the warehouse, you know, isn't really open to the public. Oh, right, I, get, I was stacking party. up. Yeah, and I remember I went there with who? I don't remember with who. I think you were by yourself. I think you were here on tour. Uh-huh. And I spotted you just mulling around the shelves and I just said you know fuck I know that guy who is that guy yeah. and and it was because I'd recognized you from seeing you probably on you know the Tonight Show or yeah, something on like Letterman that. maybe yeah pro- I'm sure it was probably Letterman and, yeah. and and it just finally clicked you know I was just like wait a second I think that's that that, that Mark that comedian guy yeah, yeah. Letterman that you know that guy's really funny and so I just went up and started talking to you and you had I believe just seen an ad in The Stranger and just were looking for something to do because you were in town doing stand up right that must have been a while ago. it was probably it was easily you know probably 12 years ago that's right it was before I met my wife who lived here and then you know later left me sure <laughs> but I remember going to that thing and just being thrilled and then getting stacks and we started talking and then we yeah yeah I, you know, it, it is, uh, uh, to this day, when a box comes from you guys, it's like Christmas at my house. Awesome. And I'm a Jew, and I don't believe in Christmas. <laughs> but when I see that box, I'm like, oh, my God, thank goodness. You know, and then, like, because I, you know, I don't, I don't seek out comics that much. Like, and I, I know Patton Oswalt, and, and I met him years ago in San Francisco, and he's a comic book hound. Like, he would go and, like, you know, and stack up on 90 titles, and he knew everything about everything. And I just really got attached to... Uh, to a few titles, but in and every time that something came up from you guys, I was like, now I can catch up with that. <laughs> Where can they go to uh, to to see the catalog uh, website? Uh, Fanographics.com. Yeah, get hip to this stuff, folks. It'll change your life. Eric Reynolds, associate publisher of Fantagraphics Books. Thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Can you hold it up by your mouth? Sure. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah, You've done right. this before. Once or twice. I, I'm in a band. Are you? <laughs> how old are you? I'm 52. You're 52? And how yeah. long has that band been together? A uh, year and a half. Oh, God years. bless you. Yeah. Ain't that something? God bless you. Do you yeah. play out? You believe it or not, <laughs> we have the nerve to play out. That's... And we're all a bunch of geezers. And, uh, except, 
Ex- just our keyboard player, a guy named Steve Fisk. He's the only experienced musician. And oh, he must be having a great time. And then, uh, well, so it seems since there's no money in it. But uh, <laughs> and then three women who uh, have all three who have never been in a band in their lives. Are, uh-huh. uh, and just learn their instruments. I've been in the bands in the past, but uh, um, the three women, this is like the first time ever that they've ever been in a band. And we all basically live in the same neighborhood. We're all in walking distance oh, to man. each other. So. And I, my guest right now, I'm very excited, is Pete Bag, who is the uh, creator of uh, Hate Comics. There you go. That that's But that's your big one, right? I mean, Yes, yes. That's the most famous and, one. And I remember when I first started reading Hate, it was just like one of these things where I'm like, oh my God, there's artists out there speaking the same language as me, living the same life that I am. Right. And and the main character, Buddy, right? That's right. There was Buddy and Vera. There was Valerie, Valerie and Lisa and, and Stinky. Lisa, Stinky. Yeah. Oh, man. Now, I, now, what was the run of Hate? What was the window there? How many years? Uh, all through the 90s, from 1990 to 98, 99, something like that. How many issues did you do? I did 30. And I still do, I still, I started up a title in 2000 called Hate Annual. I mm-hmm. wanted to keep the I buddy, remember, yeah. And, uh, and it hasn't lived up to its name. <laughs> After 11 years, I'm working on Hate Annual number 8. So Is uh, everybody older? Did you grow Yeah, I'm still having them... Just like in Gasoline Alley, or uh, or for better or worse, everybody ages in real time, more or less. Oh, that's great. So uh, I'm told that uh, Gasoline Alley, which started in 1919, something like that, somewhere way back then, I just learned that uh, it's still in print. Of course, the original creator died ages ago, but they still hire artists to keep it going, and they're still aging in real time, so the main character, Walt Wallet, is now... Like 110, <laughs> and his son is like in his 80s. <laughs> so there must be a lot of um, prescription medicin- medication well, jokes. I'm glad they're honoring the intent of the <laughs> artist. <laughs> while not li- while refusing to let them die. <laughs> yeah. Why not? How many? How much can? You, that's a rare uh, situation where you have that control to just that's keep, right. buddy, keep them aging. But that's funny that they didn't level them off and just stop them at a certain age. And it could be like the Old Testament where mm-hmm. everybody lived to be 837 his son lived to be 630 they had 900 children (laughs) (laughs) so how much impact did uh did zine culture have on the generation of comics that you came from around that time what year was that 1980 1980 Uh um a lot of a lot of cartoonists at least just like people who were just doing what you'd think of as zines a lot of cartoonists started self-publishing, but they did it in all wildly different formats. From the high end, you'd have Art Spiegelman who was doing Raw, which was big, physically big, and very glossy and very slick. But he had a publisher. Um, no, he published it himself. Oh, so really? He, believe it or not, Raw, he was self-publishing. Wow, him and so his I, wife, I, Francois. Maybe those uh, those old Raws I have are worth some money. Um, yes. Oh, good. As long as they're not trashed. No, as long I as didn't you didn't uh, color in the black and white. No, I, <laughs> I didn't give them to any of my nieces or nephews there to use as coloring go. books. Yeah, I'm sure they're worth plenty. Um, and then, of course, uh, Kinko's. Lots of people did mini comics. Yeah, I remember and th- those. They were small enough to stick into a regular envelope, and mm-hmm. uh, and then you'd send it off to friends, and there was t- tons of those. Those seemed to especially come out of... Um, flyover country people who are stuck in omaha were doing mini comics just like somebody yeah. out there yeah. recognize what i'm trying to do little I, cries for help i hate football do you hate football too <laughs> that'd be the name of one of them i hate football yeah in fact there was a by the time i was pretty established um there was a then very young cartoonist he was still in his teens and living with his parents uh, named Chris Cooper, who goes by the name Coop, who became a famous illustrator, sort of hot roddy and yes. rothy kind of. Yes, yeah. he's pretty well known. Yeah, and um, but he used to write to me when he was just a teenager, and I would be shocked at how knowledgeable he was. He lived in a teeny tiny town in Oklahoma. Uh, had no friends that had anything in common with him. Nobody that he knew physically had uh, an interest in anything that he was interested in. But he knew all about. Von Dutch and Big Daddy Roth and 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 obscure rockabilly artists and um, and when I'd ask him how is it possible you know all about this stuff 
and he says it's this wonderful thing called the U.S. mail. He goes, I live through my mailbox, just constantly write, sending off, you know, ordering things, and then that would lead to more things, then I get in touch with people, and he goes, I just keep writing to everybody. It's interesting that all you guys know each other and that you had that relationship with him because I would never assume that you and Coop would necessarily be buddies because he's part of that whole, uh, you know, hot rod uh, legacy of, of Big Daddy Roth and, and Von Dutch and and uh, and that's uh, you know, Robert Williams. Right. And then you have this Seattle school, which it seemed more of a, a legacy to the type of stuff you do, which is more um, organic and more our crummish and more personal storytelling. And then you have you know, other marginal type of artists or outsider art. And all this stuff seemed to kind of swirl in one big circle and it all falls under that umbrella of alternative culture. Right. And that whole alternative world was still, compared to now, back in the 80s, it was very small. It, um, there used to be a much bigger difference between what was mainstream culture and what was underground or alternative culture. Right. Uh, there were so many books and comics and records that you simply couldn't find in uh, Main like, Street like you can now in a Barnes and Noble store, yeah, they were very hard to come by. There's a store, in fact, here in Seattle. There's a bookstore called Bailey Coy, which used to be a go-to place for anybody looking for gay or lesbian literature, uh -huh. anything to do with gay or lesbian culture. And they were right in the heart of the gay neighborhood in Seattle. But they used to do a huge mail order business because, again, people, poor, isolated people in the middle of nowhere, you know, who needed them to to access this stuff and but now they have amazon and right they don't need and, them. and now and to feel less alone and to feel like that the, right. there are other people that shared their sensibility right well that's an interesting and it's very idea. bittersweet now they're going out of business they just did go out of business oh that's story. sad yeah well that's sort of like a, that's a weird kind of argument that with the access of the internet and these big companies appropriating or accumulating right. everything right. that there, i think that was really part of of the appeal of, of alternative culture when it started was you had to go find the shit right and you either had to you know someone had to turn you on to it and things felt very either or it was all very either or that changed drastically around nineteen well with Nirvana you know all, and then all of a sudden everything that was weird and obscure did become mainstream you well know, you much sort of some, you, and I, the same with me I, right. I, I I I didn't make a uh, I didn't make a five figure salary until. 1989. Well, I think that your 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 stuff sort of defined that kind of disenfranchised, you know, uh, lazy on purpose, uh, right. you know, I you know you know fuck it all right. disposition in a very personal way, and it sort of coincided with the grunge thing. No. Yes. Yeah. That was a, a weird, but very sudden coincidence with the buddy Braddock character that was in Hate. Um, Buddy, of course, is a stand-in for myself. He's largely based on myself, even, mm -hmm. though, even though our lives don't totally match. But um, he was always 10 years younger than me. So by the time I started doing that comic, Hate, I was already making okay money, married, had a kid, owned my own house. So, And obviously, Buddy didn't have any of those things. But mm -hmm. he was me 10 years previous. Right. And and I actually I, I worked with that character, Buddy, Buddy Bradley, all through the 80s. He used to be a teenager living in his parents' house right. prior to that and right. in, in earlier comic books I used to do. Oh, really? Yeah. So he was your uh, your alter ego yes, for he years. Was, yes, yes, still is, even though I rarely get a chance to work with him. How Although now i got a development deal. Of all th After all these years, I've got a development deal with Fox to make a Bradley family TV, TV show? show. Yes. Really? Yes. Isn't it interesting how long it takes him, I mean, thankfully, on some level, to, to sort of catch up with the idea of it? Right, right. It's just, and everybody's going to say, what's this new ripoff of The Simpsons, <laughs> even though it's 30 years old? I don't know if they will. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, because... Well, we're, we're hopefully it won't come off that way. I'd... Are you going to do the art? Well, yeah, it's going to... I'll it's definitely all you. be designing the... Well, we know what... I'm really jumping the gun here. It's uh, we're, we're still writing the right. script, and then right. once... Script it, it's going well so far so good knock on wood but then we still once they prove the script then they'll produce a pilot and if they like the pilot I'm familiar with this process yes it, <laughs> it's and it's horrible yeah <laughs> it's it so is it, it's just because you know what it, what's horrible about it is that when you do something as singular as that like even with my stand up if I get a deal based on my stand up when I write a script I'm like this is my life you know it, there's no right. like I'm not imagining this guy. Right. So when they say we're not going to buy it, you're like, well, what am I going to do now? That was a big chunk of my life. If that chunk of my life is not going to sell, that's what I do. Right. I manufacture me. Right. And it's very disheartening. Right. 
And then when you're going through this process, they say, well, look, and again, you're thinking of it as your life. Mm-hmm. And, and it, which unfortunately makes you a bit rigid when it comes That's to true. developing it. Yeah. So when they start telling you, how about if yeah. this, how about if this, uh, this alternate version of you. Yeah, how about you're married and you have three kids? I'm right. Like, how yeah. How about that. you have a pink pony? I can't what do imagine you think? that. Yeah. <laughs> pink pony I could deal with. Kids yeah, I don't think right, I can handle. You do have a pink pony. Sure, I got a pink pony and a unicorn and all kinds of flying things. I, uh, But at least you have some distance. I mean, at least you know that your character is a character. Yeah. And that, that should uh, work. That's right. Out. That's true. With with a comedian, it must be worse when you're just standing there and, they're, and the camera is pointing at well, you. Well, some guys are characters. You know, right. I mean, some guys are caricatures of themselves. I never was able to make that leap. Oh. I think that I, I spent so much time just trying to get to me that the idea of <laughs> manufacturing some other version of me. Was that too- sounds like a really bad song. Yeah. I'm just trying to get to me. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's the path uh, I should That'd take next. That'd be the next. theme song. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it should, should be sung like that, too. With just my like, band yeah. performing. <laughs> I think we got a deal. There we go. I'll pitch it. I'll, I'll drop your name, too. What's the name of the band? <laughs> well, we're co- Oh, my God, you'll never remember it. We're called... Can you imagine? Oh, that'll fit perfectly. <laughs> That's the whole thing? With the pink pony. and everything. Oh, yeah, the pink pony and the, uh, and the I'm just trying to get to me song. <laughs> the hit. That's the theme song of the new pilot. Let's <laughs> call it go. that. I'm just trying to get, get to me. <laughs> A hilarious new comedy <laughs> with troubled stand-up Mark Maron. Now, what about the resentment factor, Pete? Oh, it's huge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I knew it had to be. I, you don't even have to ask me... Uh, Tell me what you're referring to. <laughs> well, I just mean like, you know, uh, not unlike my business. I mean, you guys work hard. You put this stuff out there. You have a limited sort of fan base because, right. you know, what you That you're... slowly dies. Yeah, <laughs> or gets old and forgets that you still publish stuff. That's right. Uh, and, and that, you know, your, your, uh, your market is what it is, but it, you know, I mean, you, you did have a very large following. But like when you see someone like, uh, what's his name, Matt Groening, uh, or you see somebody like just transcend into this like, you know, the stratosphere financially and popularity wise is there a lot of like yeah no no, well first of all if it's if it's somebody that i like and i like his or her work i'm i'm sincerely thrilled and happy to see them do well that makes you a good person yeah there you go well i well but uh did you you work with matt did you know him yeah i've yeah i've known him from way back when back when he used to xerox little mini comics really what, what was the original crew because i know there was you know i know you know well you know. he lived in portland no mm-hmm. he no he lived in la by then yeah but uh, and, and again we would rarely meet like I, for example i was helping robert crumb edit weirdo magazine in the 80s in the early 80s he asked me to be the managing editor of a magazine he started anthology. i remember he weirdo yeah but uh, I'd, I'd been working with him for over a year before i had ever even met him we just worked through the mail you and crumb Yes, and uh, was that a, a big exciting thing for you? As a, yes, of course, he was my all-time favorite artist, still is. So he's yeah, the best. That, yeah. I mean, he's like the, it's like the mountain of. Yes. Uh, he's of, the absolute best. Yeah, like, I can see that. He's you the know, Beatles of comics. Yeah, he's like you're the, like the direct legacy of him. So I imagine that having that opportunity. Yeah, it was were, thrilling, and he was wonderful too. He was a really nice guy, very very helpful. Did you Gave find me, you learned things from him? Yes, like main, what? Not uh, well, especially since we weren't sitting down next to each other. Right, it wasn't very detailed, hands-on things, but it was more just attitude and how to, not just how to approach your art, but also uh, how to approach your career and what's important. And uh, and he would basically. He would just say, of course, you're going to do whatever you want, but here's my feeling on the subject. This is why I do what I do. Well, what were some of the life changers? It was mainly he just kept saying, always just make everything to entertain yourself. Just please yourself. Always think of yourself as having an audience of one. And uh, he said, because you never know if anybody, and it could be nobody, says you never know who else might like it. So, But at least if you appeal to yourself then you'll know you'll like it and he says and there's always a lot of people out there that are thinking like you he says so don't don't jump through hoops and guess what other people like and don't look at the market and see what 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 are people reading these days and what do they like these days and i'm gonna mimic it yeah you know just just be pure that's a i mean how is that a new 
bit of advice, be true to yourself, but that's all it was. But, but he, when, he, he routinely did it. He was very consistent in that regard. And also and prolific in the sense that, you know, whatever was going through his mind. I, I mean, I, I think that that's great advice in, in that level because, like, when you are like him or you're like you and you know that you, there's, a, there's a certain vulnerability to what you're putting out there and there's a right. certain, you know, I mean, you know, Crumb puts out some pretty, like, you know, morally dubious and, and misanthropic and uh, some stuff that is very out there. Right. That to indulge your brain in that way and not have any shame about it and also, you know, illustrate it, it takes a certain amount of balls. Right. And, and, and to not question that is, is, is no small feat. Right. Right. Did you have that experience any time? Yes. And again, this is something that I would talk to him about. Um, there were certain strips I'd start to do and I would get cold feet. I would right. think this is a little too personal, mm-hmm. and I'm afraid people are going to make fun of me if I do this. And he said, those are always the strips you have to do, and they are always the ones that will <laughs> – those are the ones that you will always be the best known for. He Was says, he right? Yeah, he says it's like jumping into a swimming pool. It, it's going to be warm, might be freezing, you don't know, but you got to – don't take baby steps, just jump right in. Did, and, and was he right? Yes, yeah, it, he was 100% correct. An interesting thing, too, about when I, at the time I was working with him in the 80s, career-wise, he was not doing well at all. His He had a fabulous first flush of fame, pardon the mm-hmm. that very illiterate sentence, back in the late 60s and early 70s. With Zap and then... Yes, and then and he made a lot of money. Then for many re, too many reasons to go into, at least financially, his career really went way downhill. Mm-hmm. So he was... He, him and his wife were living a very bare-bones existence at the time I met them. In very, San Francisco? They were they? living in a small farmhouse about 50 to 100 miles outside of San Francisco, mm-hmm. a place called Winters. Really depressing place, too, just farming. Everybody was a farmer. I don't know what he was doing there. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was like in the Central Valley. It was yeah. hot yeah. and dry and awful and pesticides everywhere. And he, people would offer him good money. Sometimes people would tell me, tell yeah. Robert I'll pay him 500 bucks if he'll do a drawing for our magazine. And yeah. he would say no. And I'm like, it's not like some awful magazine. It's just a, an alternative newspaper. Yeah. He's like, no. He goes, I don't know them. They're going to write about stuff I don't give a crap about. <laughs> I No. I'm like, couldn't you use the money? He goes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but look at him now. By staying so true to himself for so long, now he's making more money than ever. Well, what inter- what's interesting that happened to him is he was sort of, now he's been elevated by, you know, the literary world and the art world. Yeah, yeah. Which is like... And this- it was a movie that did propel him to this level, that documentary. But I think that's why I liked your comics, you know, more than a lot of other ones, was because of that honesty and that, you know, there were certain things that happened in your comics that had to be real life. Yes, and that the feelings of, of confusion, anger, malaise, uh, you know, sort of existential predicament, uh, you know, personal purpose, and, and then just, you know, insane, you know, drugs and sex and, and weird girls. And right. It, it, it just was so, was so real, but there was something about the, the way that you, you drew them that made them, you know, warm and, and relatable. And yes. that's, a, that's a gift, my friend. Oh, thank you very much, sir. Did it, now was that? Did you find when you have fans of that? Do you find that you have a lot of uh, uh, Buddy Bradleys who write to you or come oh, yes. up? To you? Yes, yes, yes. Um, especially when you go overseas or go to another country, and it's very strange to see a long line of Buddy Bradleys that speak a different language. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, my my hate had been translated into many other languages, uh-huh. and, and usually and. I blame it on the translators. Usually the translation isn't great. Right. But um, my Spanish translator, he was the only one that would write to me constantly asking me what every little thing meant. Mm-hmm. You know, like asking me who's Rush Limbaugh if his name popped up. Right. Uh, something like that, which made me wonder, what were the translators from all these other countries doing? <laughs> well, winging it. Yeah, they were winging, winging it. <laughs> um, and as a result, the Spanish version of Hate has, has done... Fantastic! It does better there generally than it does in the in the states. But when I go over there, there's huge long lines of Spanish speaking or Catalan speaking Buddy Bradley. That's yes. hilarious. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that what 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 I guess you know, as I'm talking to you and as I talk to Eric is that what I realize now is that 
you, you know, this is really literature. I, I mean, you know, outside of the fact that it's comic books and, it, and it's comic art and it's drawings, that the things that, that, that are addressed by someone like you and, and, and coming out of Crumb are, are really, you know, the, just humanity and, and in a very deep and real way. I agree. And in fact, I would say it's better than literature because it has drawings. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I was talking to him about that, like that you that, that so much of the work is done for you and, and that if a, if a comic artist is good, there's no distance between you and that world immediately. Right. And people in the past, part, one, part of one of the many criticisms and claims or reasons why comics isn't art or could never be high art is on both levels, they said it was a cheat to have to combining the words and pictures in the same way that. High art in the form of literature, it had to be all words. As soon as you start putting pictures in it, then all of a sudden it's for kids. And, and, they would, and people would argue that uh, it should be left up to the reader's imagination, and the reader should interpret it the way they want. And when you illustrate it, you're cutting into that. Kind of like the way people don't... So many people who loved a book, they don't like the movie because the movie right. is that director's take on it, and they always pictured everything different in their own head. Well, that's so snobby and fucking yes. uh, you know, clicky. Is that like, what? can't you take them both together and see them right. both as art? And right, or just stay home and read the, the stupid book again? And <laughs> Yeah, I, but that's like... See, that's the thing that really pisses me off about you know the separations made by intellectuals in right. that like they made these assumptions because of, of graphic depictions uh, alongside of words that, like, you know, that, that's a child's book as opposed to saying, no, it's a form unto itself. Right. And it rises to the occasion. Well, it, it's, it's, you can't knock it till you try it, but trying to successfully combine wording pictures is, is quite a hat trick. Hmm. You know, especially doing a long comic strip. It's not one page, each panel is a separate drawing. So each panel has to work on its own. You have to have composition in that panel, and you have to combine the words and the pictures correctly. Then all those panels have to work together to make a page. Then all those pages have to work together to make a story. So it's, it, you're doing a lot of juggling. But what I was going to say, though, about a problem, too, about people saying, well, when you're reading a book that's straight text, mm -hmm. you can interpret it in your own way, and the, the drawings in a comic will take away from that. But that's not really true, just in the mere fact that so many people will interpret the same comic in countless different ways. Right. It's a relationship with it. Yeah, it's, and they're projecting. They'll right. be projecting. And you see someone as your friend in a different way than you would see somebody in a book as your friend. Right. Right. Yeah. Or it could be, like you would say, obviously, I must relate to you because I related to Buddy Bradley. Right. That's what you'd say. But then there are other people who would say, I, I haven't had any life experiences like you. Or there are people who would say... I know I've known people like you, and I hate people like you. Yeah, right. right. And therefore, I can't stand your comic. <laughs> Why would I want to read about someone like that? I finally got that guy out of my life. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, now you want me to live in that world? <laughs> Wallow in it. <laughs> well, Pete Bag, it was great talking to you. Sure, thanks. Now I'm going to go into the store, and I'm going to go get all the uh, hate annuals that I've missed. Okay, wonderful. My guest in, uh, it's not in studio, we're in the blacksmith warehouse. <laughs> not like the men's warehouse. <laughs> no, definitely not like the men's warehouse. <laughs> it's cold and full of metal and machinery, heavy machinery. I'm talking to a woman that operates some heavy machinery. Yeah. And not a backhoe. Yeah. No, this is like, I, now let, let me give a little backstory. Uh, Lorna Smolsky is a sculptor, blacksmith, artist who I've known for about 25 years. Is that about right? More, probably more, 26, 27 years? Getting there, yeah. Uh, yeah. Right. Although you couldn't tell by looking. No, of course not. We, <laughs> we both look uh, 35 at the oldest. Uh, when I met her, I was in college in Boston University, um, and she was at Mass Art, right? Yeah. And I was at the Ratskeller in Kenmore Square. I think it was even, it might have been a Steve Albini show. Really? Is that possible? You don't think it's, so? Well, it, it's entirely possible. And long live the rat. Yeah, that's way gone. Way, so sad. It's so sad. But there I was, like, in my uh, sort of pseudo uh, new wave kind of, I don't remember how I dressed, but I knew it was the opposite of you. And I saw you, like, in the middle of the dance floor with this, like, screaming black mohawk. Really? Yes. I had, that might have been the hairstyle of the day. It was a big one. <laughs> And I was like, I got to meet that girl. And I, then I met you. You thought that about me? Yeah. Okay. 
Why? Because well, I thought that about you. I thought I see the way I remember it is I went came to you. Well, that's probably true. But no, really. I mean, that's how I remember it. I and just remember it like there was uh, we were probably drinking and yeah. OK, so maybe it was mutual. OK. And then we ended up like hanging out and like talking. And see, like this is the problem is that a lot of times on these podcasts, you know, I have, you know, resentments to work through with whoever I'm talking with, but I don't have any with you. Wow, thank and, you. But I, I think that you have sort of a short list. See, here's a, or maybe a long list. Of things that I feel resentment well, no, just some, Well, just some things we got to clear up. Oh, really? Maybe. Okay. I, 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 I think that we've buried the hatchet for the most part, but my recollection of things is not, uh, is not that good. So we met in Boston. We were drinking a lot. Yeah. Right, of course. And here's how I remember the first time that we, this is, there are certain things that you did that, that, that changed my life forever. All right. This is, no, it's not, it's, it's, don't worry, I'm not going to get I'm, dicey. So I remember going to your house for the first time because you represent. Stop the tape. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I'm not going to talk about anything that's going to get anybody into trouble because he just told me that you're engaged and I don't want to make any waves with 25-year-old stories about children. So. Well, I, this is what I remember. I remember being fascinated with you because you were an artist, because you, uh, you, know, you had this attitude where you're like, Aah! and you were just running around. You, you were like kicking walls down and things. You wore boots. Yeah, yes. You know, yes. And uh, you were, you know, you're pretty, uh, you're pretty tough. So we go to your house the first time, and you're going to show me some of your art. <laughs> and this is what I remember. I remember walking in. You had all kinds of cool shit. And then you had this large sculpture. Of a, of a emaciated female figure with the vagina just filled with nails. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so I remember I was, that one. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, wow. So does my mother. Yeah, my <laughs> poor mother. <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> what does this mean? Is this hot or scary? Yeah, you know, I, and I, I didn't even know what I was doing. <laughs> but you, you certainly but expressed something. It. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was a completely emotionally driven person. Right. Now, see, here's where the timeline gets a little screwy. Like, okay, so we hung out in Boston for a while. You were dating a guy that made large sculptures out of soft things. Yeah, and, 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 and meat and plaster and all sorts of things. And he made sculptures out of meat? Yes, he, he, he made a sculpture out of ham once. How big, how big was that? How many ham? It was a whole ham with a, um, you know, carefully prepared with the uh, hatch marks, cloves, pineapple, and uh -huh. maraschino cherries yeah. with a life-size female leg of plaster attached to the end of the ham, and, uh, which he served. At a party? At an opening? <laughs> yeah. As an installation piece? Yes. So we hung okay. out for a while, and we had a fairly uh, torrid, exciting, drunken time for a few months. Oh, yes. Right. And then, and then <clears throat> I left. I graduated college, and we broke up or something, and then we decided to get back together, and you came to New Mexico. Yeah. No? I yeah, I guess so. And then we went yeah, to New Mexico. Yeah, probably. I mean, I just re I remember the, the, um, the torrid, and I remember <laughs> Was I <laughs> the a problem? apartment. Yeah, the, the, apartment the apartment in Brookline. With the, yeah, and um, I just remember, like, being really, really mad, you being really, really mad, and then you walking on stage and, like, boom, everything's okay. And I don't know if I, in my, you know, emotional immaturity, expected you to be, like... Really fucked up on mad stage. Mad on your show, you yeah. know, at your show. Because, yeah. You know, I don't know, but I was just like, whoa. How do you do that? How I'm with a psychopath. That? He's yeah. a sociopath. Sociopath. Yeah. yeah, that's more like it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then here's what I remember. We took a trip to Carlsbad Caverns, right? Yeah, and the car was breaking down. There was a, that was my mom's station wagon, though. We yes. were driving down my mom's station wagon, and the car fucking broke down. And then we got that weird the the Delta, Delta 88. <laughs> the big green Delta 88. Yeah. And we got down to Carlsbad, and we got a shitty hotel room and a bunch of beer, and we fought. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went to uh, Pete the Chef's. And had chicken fried steak for the first time. <laughs> so that was memorable. Oh, yeah, it was totally. I remember that little sandwich board sign <laughs> with the hand-painted chef on the front. And then we went to the bat cave and saw that. Yeah, the mountain, the bat shit. I yeah. remember the big attraction is not only the bats, but the fact that there's like a mountain of bat shit thousands of years old. So here's what happens then. You go back to Boston. You get a job at the naked eye. Uh, eventually, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you were working. I, I was bartending 
there at a in the combat zone in Boston. At a strip club. Yes. But you were not a stripper. You were just no, there. No, 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 no stripping for me. But I remember seeing you at that time. You know, I remember going back to Boston, uh, standing you up, you hating me, and, and then there was. Another. Well, you were going to. You were moving out what to the West Coast. Okay. To. Uh, to you, L.A. You like so many other people I know they came out to uh, California and just lost their their fucking mind so when i came back to visit you i was lost my mind yeah you had problems <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like like what like what happened well you you uh you were was i like mean crazy yeah you were you you had an exaggerated personality <laughs> <laughs> well well i i guess if you the, the way i think about coke is that it, it sort of takes the interval of assholeness that a person has and it yeah. increases the interval and so, intensifies, and it. intensifies yeah. it so so yeah that's you were on a rampage yeah of of cocaine of cocaine yeah. and you were very excited about it you you felt very powerful at the time having met a lot of the people that you had met in yeah. california Kennison, Kennison, that whole, yeah, yeah you were just like you know intoxicated right with that yeah. whole world here's a couple of things that, that you did that changed my life you know outside of anything we can't talk about uh first you introduced me to patchouli which i still wear yeah i noticed that yeah it, it used you're to, still wearing it yeah. yeah and you uh because you used to put it you asked you put like globs of patchouli on your letters sometimes oh i did yeah oh yeah i love that smell yeah it's the best and that that i have to thank you for you oh, sent me welcome. several uh I, I i had some sort of weird you know i thought you were a witch for a while were you i was interested in that i was always seeking some sort of reason for things to be or some sort of maybe semblance of control over what was happening to me if i could will something to be right because i've yeah struggled with those feelings of of powerlessness over the course of my life so did the witch thing work or because i remember you sent me like a bag like a mojo bag yeah well kind. i mean i certainly think that that there's there's a lot to be learned about medicinal herbs and old sure knowledge and traditions i don't i don't discount any of that would you remember sending me a bag yeah and it wasn't you know an evil it was bag. A, no it was not an evil bag it was a good bag it was good yeah i kept it for years and I never opened it because I thought that would mean it would not work anymore. Yeah, or something would jump out. Yeah, you know, something happened. Some, uh, some weird genie. Like, or something worse. <laughs> you shouldn't have opened the bag. <laughs> yeah, or you would find something just absolutely horrible. Yeah, so that changed my life, the patchouli, and, and being uh, with you changed my life. Because I, like, and also, uh, oh, that thing you said when you quit working at the Naked Eye, because you weren't a stripper, you were just a bartender. Do you remember what you said? You said, uh, I got tired of men looking at me like I was food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. Yeah. And then you said something to me that I think I actually, you know, some version of it, uh, the conversation made it into my HBO special about uh, in 95 about people who are, uh, it was something about depression. I'd have to look at the joke again about oh, how wow. people who get on medication who are really depressed and then it's sort of like, oh, flowers. I can't remember what it was, but it came out of a conversation with you. But I always like seeing you because for some reason, uh, you know, you're a powerful person in my life, Lauren Osmolsky. Now, let's go over the times where, all right, there was, okay, so you had the witch period. We did the, the vagina dentata thing. And then there was a period where I went over to your house. And there were literally, I, from my recollection, there were dangling strands of ceramic skulls that were almost like Tim Burton-ish type of skull yeah, heads. Just, you know, it was before, Tim, the nightmare before okay, Christmas I'm came out, which just destroyed my, my tiny skull business. <laughs> Did you have a tiny skull business? Well, we're, I was planning on it. That's my ticket. <laughs> so <laughs> that, It looked like Jack, and it pissed me off. I was like, oh, I'm always missing the boat. That was a dark time, though, because what was the incentive of the skulls? Yes, it was very dark time, because it was... It was at that the beginning of that uh whole hiv scare where you're you know you're supposed to get tested you got to wait for the test to come through well the test doesn't tell you what happened in the previous month and you know if you were doing any kind of catting around then you don't you don't know whether you're going to live or die you know we were just at that the beginning yeah. of that now it's it doesn't it does does it even occur to people that they're going to die from this i don't know but I was thinking about it, and I was thinking about 
you know, my illustrious past, and I was kind of obsessing about it, so I was making these little skull beads and envisioning it as like, okay, well, there was that night. I'll make one little bead for that guy. <laughs> what was his name? I don't even know. I'm like making a list of all these people and then going, Holy wow, <laughs> I'm fucked. <laughs> and so I made all these beads and I strung them together and I had this incredibly long strand of beads and it was just, you know, the necklace of death. Right. It was horrifying. So, that's so I had to go get the test, and it turns out I'm fine, and that's a miracle. But I, I thank God for that. Well, well, that's interesting. So you got the test, but out of the fear, you uh, almost had a skull business. I, well, yeah. I mean, I, I love those skulls. I, I managed to sell one necklace of horror. I don't know if they knew what they were buying. But, well, I you don't know, you've got to figure it's, it's a really powerful talisman to have concentrated all this energy and worry into these beads you know and and, and then and have this this yeah. vibrating yeah. object of right. anxiety right and then somebody comes along and goes wow that would look really good in my collection of south american <laughs> folk art <laughs> <laughs> then they bring it into their home yeah you can't I, really I, tell them no no you, the, no that's not the kind of thing that you you sell with a little card that says this came out of a very dark period of my life and well, this represents a unknown man i fucked at some other point in time yeah who might have killed me exactly enjoy your skull yeah but you know you gotta work you know wonder about that in some of the more powerful works of art that you you look at you know when you you, you don't know what you're looking at or what what fueled it and where it came exactly. from exactly well, that's, I, I think that's an amazing part of the creative process because I think a lot of my jokes come out of complete fear and desperation as well. Yeah. I do think I did some jokes about AIDS, but they explained themselves. There was no cryptic sort of like, you know, it yeah. wasn't Well, pretty. no, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't. And, you know, I didn't even set out for it to be like, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to make art about my... Your fear of yeah, AIDS. Yeah. No, was, no, of course not. Yeah. Well, and then Tim Burton comes along and fucks up your whole big business idea. What the heck? But look at me now. Yeah, we're in a we're in a steel warehouse with I, a lot of machinery. Yeah, in. I'm 45 and I have the economic situation of a 22 year old. <laughs> Congratulations! It's awesome. You you are a professional artist. I'm living moment to moment. I'm just fucking happy you're doing it. When I look back on my life, I really just see myself as a late bloomer. Mm. You know, I think there's a certain amount of fear that you have, and you have to be of ready course. to take the leap. Of course. I don't think I was emotionally ready to take the leap. But I think that... But until, no, until, you know, now, at this phase of my life. Well, I think that... The, I'm best the, prepared for it now. Well, I think what, what I saw was that you were an artist that never stopped creating, never stopped generating stuff. You were always doing shit in all different mediums. You were always trying stuff. And it seemed to me that the big transition to make was, you know, how do you, you know, move away from... A, a bigger vision of legitimate art uh, and, and into something that you can actually make into a business, which right. is still legitimate art. But I mean, there's a difference between spending two years on a sculptor, on sculpture that you hope gets into a gallery and making art that is accessible that you can repeat because there's something about metal that can be repeated. Absolutely. And does not, de, you know, de, deny the integrity of whatever you're making. It still is what it is. Right. And I think that you're uh, you were more hung up with the sort of like, I don't want to do something that everybody likes that I can right. make a lot of. Yeah. Again, completely emotionally driven. All I cared about was making work. Right. And making work that meant something huge. And I really felt like I had something to say. And then I got out of school and I was like, hey, guess what? Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. nobody gives a damn what I do. Yeah. And really, when you look at the problems in the world, who the fuck am I anyway? Right. You know, it just seemed like ridiculous. I'm important. Uh, I can yeah, weld. Yeah, I'm not important. Yeah. So, uh, uh, I guess, like, over time, I realized that, that, you know, you just have to rely on your own voice. You just have to sort of give up the idea that you're, you're, you're so important that you, your work right. uh, it's timeless. speaks for itself yeah. and, and turn it into more of a profession. Right. But I think that over the time that you've done it, the, the amazing thing that I, I think as somebody who has committed his life to whatever art that I do is that you never stop working. You always took chances. You always expanded and tried new things. You know, there's a, and you've integrated all that stuff into what you do now. I mean, what you're doing now is you work in this blacksmith shop and you make stuff that you can 
you make more than one of and make it available to people that would like to have your work, which is a good thing. Right. Yeah. Now, the- I, I do some I do some production stuff that's functional, but I also do more artistic higher end uh, editions of functional items, say, that that are pretty much they're, they're, they're along the same lines, but each are unique. But the, Can we describe some of them? Like, uh, I make really beautiful candle holders. Mm-hmm. Big um, ones. Like, is that one with the flowers yeah, there? Yeah. See, if I had a real great website, we'd have pictures up. Well, it's on my website. What is your website? www.laurenosmolski.com. That's L-A-U-R-E-N-O-S-M-O-L-S-K-I. Laurenosmolski.com. Yeah. So... Yeah, I'm trying to do really beautiful, unusual, unique stuff that people can have for their homes that's just better than Pottery Barn. Hell yeah. Um, and this woman bends steel, my friends. Right. I make larger scale work that's really heavily textured um, steel because I think that's something that's really unique about blacksmithing today. Most people don't see the malleability and the sort of clay-like qualities that metal can have when you heat it hot enough and you just stomp on it really hard, it 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 bends, it flows. So oh, yeah. I, I think that's something that I try to really bring out in my work and um, take something that's industrial and hard-looking and sort of impart uh, softness and life to it. Have you ever made a horseshoe just for the fuck of it? No, 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 no. I That's haven't. not like a basic 101 thing. It's like, now we're going to make a horseshoe. Well, a farrier is a, a smith that, that works with the animals. And you have to know about the oh. orthopedic situations that you're addressing with the animals. So no there's, shit. A, there's a lot that goes along with that. Right. So you can't just slap on a piece of metal. I mean, you can imagine if... You know, you walked up to somebody on the street and said, hey, would you make me a pair of high heels? Right. <laughs> what you would end up with. <laughs> so, so, yeah, I don't do that. But I, I, um, I have learned some really basic skills along the way. And I teach blacksmithing now, too. Really? At a, at a little art school. Is there money in that? No, not a lot. No. I mean, I'd like to do a lot more teaching because I really enjoy incorporating my waitressing skills and my <laughs> artistic skills which is how i see it but what does that mean how do the waitressing skills come into well teaching? it's for, it's working with people right you know and and uh reading into people's world in in the blink of an eye like what's happening in yeah. that moment yeah. you know are you tricking me are you lying to me you know what are you being lazy <laughs> are you being stupid what are you doing you must have been a hell of a waitress <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> 23 years. <laughs> I, I learned a lot yeah. from that. I yeah. mean, I, I learned so much. I love people. Really? I mean, I really do. I, <laughs> I think it's so funny. I, it, it's made me totally fearless. Waitressing. Absolutely. I'm not afraid of anybody. <laughs> Honestly, I'm not. Because you can see the angles are working. Well, they need food. <laughs> and they need me to get the food. You know, I mean, that's the lesson right there. It's like, <laughs> screw you. I don't, you know, say whatever you want. Yeah. Impress your date. Yeah. You got to get through me. <laughs> <laughs> now pay your bill. <laughs> and give me a fucking tip. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and waitressing at a comedy club. Delightful. Oh, that's right. You were there at the improv briefly. Oh, yeah. I don't know how you ended up there. That was one of those weird junctures where we crossed paths again. Oh, I loved working at the improv. Yeah. Oh, it was great. I ended up being the head waitress. I could kick everybody out. I, I would do, you know, the whole room myself. I'd be cracking up while I'd be working. It would be wonderful. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. And you didn't get jaded about it? No. And you had to de- you know, deter comics from hitting on you all the time? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> it never stopped. Oh, no. And the, and the things that would happen at the, at the comedy clubs would just be hilarious. You know, the people that want to get in there and sit in the front. Yeah. You know, you just pick them out like, I got to get right up in the front. Yeah. Why? You know, yeah, yeah. so you can heckle. Right. Yeah. And then some people you would, you know, just look at and go, okay. Yeah, go you, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. Because yeah. you, you, you <laughs> know what comics can comic, take, right, yeah. take care of it. <laughs> well, you're doing great work. Thank you. And please go to LaurenOsmolski.com. L-A-U-R-E-N-O-S-M-O-L-S-K-I.com. Did I get it? 
That's pretty good, right? Thank you. Do you feel content with what we did here? Absolutely. It was great talking to you and great seeing you. Yeah. I love you. Thanks. I love you too. Okay. Long time. Yeah. Okay, you guys, I'm still in the parking lot of Totem Square waiting to go on, but uh, I didn't want to break the illusion, but I will. Thanks for listening. Uh, please give a round of applause to Pete Bag, Eric Reynolds, and the, the wonderful and intense Lauren Asmalski. Hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, go to, uh, oh boy, punchlinemagazine.com for all you care, your comedy needs of everything you need to know about comedy. And please go to WTFPod.com. We're going to be making that site bigger, expanding it. We're going to be putting uh, some video up, some new merch up. You can get there and follow us on Twitter. And please think about contributing in some way to the show. We want to stay listener-supported. We need your contributions. And don't forget, JustCoffee.coop. You can't get a discount, but you can get the coffee. And uh, all right, so I guess that's about it. I'll talk to you next time.